Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers and another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. This is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with our man, the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller. What is up, my man, Ron? Oh, yeah, man. I lo- I'm I'm here. I'm here. Uh, got old lightning <laughs> all saddled up, man. Ready to ride again. Got a good one today. We're, uh, we're going to change it up a little bit from what we normally do, the normal format, because we're getting so close to this Terry Funk World Championship match in October 10th, 1976. So we're going to uh, change this one around a little bit so that we can do something we don't normally do and try to get uh, two weeks worth of matches into this uh, one program. All right. Uh, well, no, no time then the present to get it underway. So I'm assuming that's where we're headed today, Ron. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, we're going to change up the format a little bit. Uh, we're not going to have our usual today's training in this one. And we're, and we're not going to have a learning tree question in this one. And uh, we're at this point. Basically, we're going to be talking about October 1st, uh, 1976, and October 8th, 1976. This is only 10 days before the long-awaited NWA World Championship between myself and Terry Funk. So today, we're going to talk about that 10-day period, and we'll discuss not only uh, one, but two Knoxville live shows, and then two Knoxville TVs, two Southeastern TVs. So it's a whole lot covering one studcast, but uh, these Knoxville matches, plus there's one in Amarillo, Texas, that we're going to talk a little bit about that's also in this time frame. So we're really going to set the stage for Terry Funk's arrival in Southeastern in this show. So I'd like everybody to know that next week's entire studcast is going to be about one afternoon in Southeastern Knoxville's history, Sunday, October 10th, 1976. And it's going to be a uh, one of the best cards ever held in southeastern Knoxville. The Coliseum Wrestling attendance is going to be broken on this day. Uh, one of the most controversial NWA world title matches in history is going to happen on October the 10th. Knoxville and southeastern both are in the spotlight for the first time. This new company is really kind of in the spotlight uh, across the country for what we're doing and what's going on, especially those people that I get opportunity to talk to, 
that uh, don't know what we're doing. And all this is going to happen on a Sunday afternoon. And when it does, it's just going to make the attention even brighter once they find out what happens on this day. So don't miss the next Studcast fans. If you're really into the Studcast, this next one, I think, is going to be something special. Oh, no doubt. By now, Terry Funk is throwing everything at you, including a chainsaw. All right. So, okay, Stud, it sounds like the next two are really going to be good. The buildup to this point has just been so that we could hardly stand it. So where are we starting today? How do you start today's show? Well, I'm going to jump back to that chainsaw. You know, oddly enough, uh, Terry does <laughs> like to use a chainsaw in a lot of his promos. Right. If you've seen a lot of Terry Funk promos, he brings out the chainsaw about every third pro- <laughs> every third <laughs> promo he does. We're going to start with the first of the two Southeastern Knoxville events. Uh, Obviously, the last two events in Knoxville before the NWA World Title Match, which is going to be on a Sunday afternoon. For these two events, we're going to go back to Chilhowee Park. And uh, we've had three straight shows in the Coliseum now to get ready and uh, to build up for this World Championship match. And we wouldn't have gone back except for the fact that the remaining Friday nights in the fall of 1976 in the Coliseum were already booked. When I had gone earlier, a couple of months earlier, I went and sat down with the management and they could only provide me with those uh, three dates in the Coliseum in October, late September and early October. And that's why the World Championship match is going to take place on Sunday afternoon, oddly enough, because they only had two Friday nights. And I had to take the Sunday afternoon to make that the day for the World Championship match with Terry Funk. I didn't really like taking a Sunday afternoon in the fall of the year because it's beautiful up there in that part of the country. People are wanting to get out and do things, but I I needed uh, that's when Terry was available, and I, I had no choice. We're not going to return to the Coliseum again after this world title match on October 10th until the first Sunday in January in 1977. But when we go back this next time, we're going to be in there for the longest consecutive a week after week run in the Coliseum up to that point in Southeastern history. So we're starting to make in early 77, make our mark in the Coliseum. We're starting to build our presence in that big building. Were you starting to feel better about it? You said, how many shows did you say you had done in the Coliseum and you're only a week away from this championship match? Well, we had done, obviously we did the last two shows before we're going to get to the championship match. We'd been in the park for just about the entire summer. We'd been out of the Coliseum since uh, then the spring of 76. We're trying to uh, get back into that Coliseum and stay there as much as we can. Did you feel like you were comfortable or at home enough that early, that many, only that few appearances so far at the Coliseum? Yeah, I would have liked to have had more, probably, especially because we had built our audience big time. Uh, We were drawing uh, 5,000 or so in the outside facility there at uh, Chilhowee Park in the amphitheater. So, you know, I thought we were big enough to be in the Coliseum, but the problem was I couldn't get the dates I needed in the proper times, so I had to wait until I could get those dates. We're going to start this one. We're moving from the Coliseum where we were the last week. We're going on October 1st back into Chihuahua Park. Uh, let me go ahead and give you that card, Dave, for that one. Uh, the opening yep. match is Don Carnoodle. It's only his second match in Knoxville, and he's against another newcomer, Bill Ash, and it's his second match in Knoxville. 
Uh, the next match is a ladies' midget match with Darling Dagmar versus Marie Laveau. I thought we would go ahead and uh, try to try to get the girls and the midgets and all that stuff out of the way and uh, not put them on a Coliseum show. Third match was a mixed tag match with Jimmy Golden and Lilani Kai against David Schultz and Susan Green. Fourth match was a collegiate rules match, uh, which meant it was basically wrestling only, collegiate rules. Mike Stallings against Louis Tillette. Kind of an unusual match for professional match, especially since they had been in a Texas death match the week before. <laughs> so they went from a Texas death match. Now they're going to see how they're going to do against each other in a college rules match. So uh, it should be interesting. Fifth match was a Southeastern championship between the new star, Ronnie Garvin, managed by General Homer Odell, against the champion, the gladiator, Dick Steinborn. The main event was a $10,000 bounty match. It had two special referees for this match, Tora Tanaka and Louis Tillette. It was the great Mephisto, and he's going to get his one and only opportunity to win Terry Funk's ten grand on this match on Friday night, October 1st. Wow. All right, so what was the, the TV for September 25th? This is only six days before this card. What was the TV like? Well, it was, I thought it was a great TV. The show opened up with the usual still shot, as we'd been doing on all the television shows. And the background, the still shot behind Les, and they're, uh, they're doing a close and tight shot on Les as he runs the card down. And I was the guest at the set with Les when this was happening. And when uh, he finished set, setting up the TV schedule for the day, the cameras backed away as they had been doing. And uh, all of a sudden, the opening and this still shot is there. And it reveals to the audience and those people at home what was behind Les and I the entire time. The studio crowd roared on this one and probably those at home as well. It was a shot of Don Carson following the loser leave town match from the night before in which uh, he, he could have won 10000 from Terry Funk if he'd have beat me or if he'd have hurt me. Instead, he got hurt, and, uh, and it showed him laying in the ring, unable to get to his feet after I'd put my fuller leg lock on him. And it was really strange. At the end of this match, the fans hated Don Carson so much, and this was a loser-leave town, that they came running. Hundreds of fans came running from the up in the upper level of the Coliseum down onto the floor, and they just surrounded the ring. I'd never seen that before. They wow. were probably 10 deep all the way around the ring, and they were all laughing and making fun of Carson, and Carson was Carson was down because I'd put the, the, the toehold, my leg lock <laughs> on him, and he, was, he, he wasn't going to be able to get up for a few minutes. And uh, it was really humiliating for Don, I'm sure. <laughs> but it was celebration time for the fans. And, you know, and, and he had tortured these fans for a year now. So, you know, <laughs> it was about time for them to get even a little bit. Les, at this point, he welcomes me uh, with him at the set. And the director backs a video up to right before I put the fuller leg lock on Carson. And we, they played the video from there. The Coliseum crowd was going crazy in the background, amazing how much noise they were making, and especially when I got the hold on Carson. And they were still at it when I left the ring after I got my hand raised. They never quieted down. Like I said, they hundreds of them thundered from upstairs down onto the floor, which I'd never seen before, and surrounded the ring. And then the video showed all that. 
you know, and it, and it showed the celebration for Carson's loss that everybody was having and how much fun fans were having, man, at, at really getting at Carson before he had to leave town. And as the fans surrounded the ring, uh, Carson wasn't able to get up. He was having problems getting up. And finally, the police recognized that, you know, we got a deal. <laughs> we got a little problem here. How, how are we going to get him through all these people uh, and not have a big problem? So the police, for the first time ever, kind of got themselves together. And we used to have about 10, maybe 12 police. And they all went in a group and they split the crowd up on one side of the ring. And they two cops went into the ring and helped Carson up. And then they helped him to the edge of the ring. They got him out on the floor and they <laughs> the police helped Carson back to the dressing room. Wow. You could not have choreographed that any better. That's all. Awesome. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, yeah. and they, you know, watching it on video, watching it back again and all those people screaming and, and really celebrating. You really got a feel for what kind of a activity and what kind of night it was there in the Coliseum. So, uh, yeah, it was a great piece of video. So, Leslie congratulated me while I'm there on another bounty match victory, and they asked me to stay with him as the next opponent was going to be my next match the following Friday night. The next opponent for me, the great Mephisto, is scheduled to wrestle in the first match. So I just sat with Les. And uh, Mephisto came in and, uh, you know, God, he had great heat at that point. The studio crowd, they hated him. And, you know, he'd already burned Ron Wright one time and Bob Armstrong twice. And neither of those two guys had returned. So Mephisto made quick work of his opponent, as he did on every one of his TV matches. I don't think any of them were more than four or five minutes. And, uh, and during the time he was destroying a young guy that, he kept uh, taunting me like he wanted me to come into the ring with him. And, uh, you know, and Les was like, Rhonda, don't pay attention to him. And, and I really wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to him. But when he won, Mephisto finally put the camel clutch. It's a very painful hold, obviously, too. He sat down in the middle of your back. He grabbed your neck and he pulled your neck up as, mm-hmm. uh, toward his stomach as hard he could and leaned, reared back with his body. I mean, it was like. I I never had it put on me, but I watched it and I could tell, man, that's got to hurt. And so he puts his camel clutch on this young guy and then uh, he won't let him go. (laughs) He just holds it on him. Uh, Referee rings the bell. The referee tries to pull him off. And, uh, you know, what am I going to do then? I mean, I'm going to sit there. I'm not going to. I can't sit there then make a fool of myself. I jumped up and I went into the ring. And when I did, he scooted out of the ring and. I tried to help the boy up, but, you know, a couple other guys had to come and help me, and we, we kind of carried him out. So he's going to come back, Mephisto, with Louis Tillette in a couple of minutes. Uh, after that segment, I went back to the dressing room. The kid that got hurt. Louis Tillette is going to be one of these special referees in this next Friday night event in which Mephisto's got the shot at getting the 10 grand from Funk. And there's two referees in that match, and the referee that I felt like was on my side was Tor Tanaka. So I felt like I got the best part of that when it came to referee of pitting Louis Tillette as a referee and Tor Tanaka as a referee. It was the first interview of the show. They talked about the upcoming match. Like I just mentioned, I was going to be wrestling Mephisto. Terry Funk had a $10,000 bounty up. There's two referees in the match, Tor Tanaka and Louis Tillette. So Toledo opened up the interview because he was scheduled to have this collegiate rules match with Mike Stallings on the same card. 
So he opens it up bragging about all of his skills and how he was a wrestler in high school and uh, <laughs> in college, too. And that he had no problem winning this when this was going to be a piece of cake for him. Then, uh, you know, he said uh, he'd happily make sure that I didn't cheat in the match because I always cheated. And uh, and it was, he was going to make sure Mephisto got the proper chance to win Terry's Funk $10,000. So Mephisto got a little upset by it. He got he interrupted him right away. And he started bragging about, you know, the fact that he wasn't interested in, in the money. And the 10000 didn't mean anything to him because he was a sheep. And he was already extremely rich, you know. And then he just got worse. He said something about he had lots of money and lots of wives. <laughs> that was a really good one for that part of the country. <laughs> and many girlfriends that were soon going to be his wives. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then he was only interested in one thing, and that was hurting, hurting me. You know, because he said because, uh, you know, hurting infidels brought him great pleasure. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's what he was all about. He didn't care about the money. He just wanted to hurt me, and that would have made him the money, and that he'd take the money. Kind of, well, yeah, I'd take it, I guess. Maybe give it to Lillette. You know, then he said what he liked was to just smell the scent of that burning flesh, those infidels' flesh, when he <laughs> when he burned them up. <laughs> Boy, him and Lillette had a big laugh on that one, man. I was like, oh, man, this is funny. This is good. So the indoor arena at Cherry Island Park is not going to be nearly big enough to hold this one, man. <laughs> they they got this show off to a roaring start, I can tell you that. Second match is going to be Ronnie Garvin and his manager, Homer Odell. And now Homer comes out with him and stands at ringside, obviously. And uh, Garvin did the same thing he did on his first appearance, man. He chilled that studio audience again, just like he did the first time. He pounded the head a had a young boy that was a, that not very experienced, and it wouldn't have made any difference, I don't believe, even if he had had the experience. Garvin pounded him, and they hit him so hard with some of those blows that they could probably hear it in downtown Knoxville. He finished out his opponent off the uh, same way as he had the week before. He did another one of those giant leaps off the top rope, and he dropped his knee in that kid's throat. I mean, the studio seemed as shocked by the move this week as they were the week before. It's like they just went silent, like, gosh, almighty. (laughs) He killed him, you know. And Garvin got, he was over as fast as I'd ever seen, man. Two weeks in, he's already, he's already, he's got these people paying special attention to him. So Homer and Garvin are on the second interview. And it was kind of similar to the first week. Garvin, again, never said a word. Homer looked like a proud new father with an infant baby, man. He went and he wanted to have, he wanted to brag about his baby too, you know? And, uh, and so Garvin was going for the Southeastern championship. It's only his second match and he's already in a championship match. So Homer predicted a title change that Garvin was going to win and become the new Southeastern champion. He's going to beat the gladiator. And then he added that, I'm going to lose to Mephisto in the main event. And when I lose to Mephisto in the main event and Ronnie Garvin is the new Southeastern champion, that they're going to have to have a new opponent for Terry Funk. And they're going to take the new Southeastern champion, obviously. So Ronnie Garvin's going to end up wrestling against Terry Funk on Sunday, October 10th, rather than Ron Fuller. So <laughs> and then after that, the NWA match, 
it was over on October 10th, he was going to be managing the world champion because Garvin was going to beat Terry Funk. So, you know, uh, boy, Homer was, he was really racing. His mind was racing, man. He'd gone already from not having any championships to having the Southeastern title and the world championship within a couple of days. Personality profile was with Dick Steinborn, the gladiator, and Southeastern heavyweight champion. And uh, he'd been champion since August the 13th, 1976. And he and Les talked about the newcomer, man, the dangerous Ronnie Garvin. Steinborn was really familiar with Garvin, who, along with me, we had both, me and Garvin, wrestled for Steinborn and his famous father, Milo Steinborn, in the early 1970s in Florida. So Dick Steinborn handled the promotion in some of the cities for his father, Milo. Steinborn was very concerned about this match. It made it obvious. He commented on the fact Garvin looked to be in much better shape than years ago, and his knee drop from the top rope he thought was as dangerous a finish as he'd ever seen. Steinborn had wrestled some of the best wrestlers in the world in his career, and he knew wrestlers and he knew wrestling. But I think he just realized how much Garvin's youth and power and, and that awesome finish threatened him as a champion. You know, he, he didn't seem real, real confident about this match because Garvin had made a big impression on everybody. So Tortanaka enters the ring for the first live match. Boy, he got a huge ovation. He's really over. Southeastern fans had really taken to the big man. They flocked him everywhere we went. All these small towns outside Knoxville, the fans loved Tanaka. They were just flocked to the door. When he came out the dressing room door, they would be mob of people following him to the ring. Uh, and, you know, so the fans in the studio that day, they showed their love for him too, man. They were really, really into Tanaka. And he didn't change his style a bit since he became a babyface. He, he wrestled only when it was absolutely necessary, but he didn't hold back on his karate moves. He was still into that. And the studio crowd loved it, man, especially this day because he's wrestling against a pretty good little heel, Bill Dundee, and Boy, he sliced and diced him with those karate chops. Uh, the fans were just loving it. So then I'm going to defend my Southeastern TV championship on the last match of this show against a great old-timer who was wrestling presently in the Memphis Territory at this time, Don Fargo. So Fargo got his heat up on me, and, uh, and I made a comeback at the end. And when I put the fuller leg lock on him and I was down in kind of a helpless position, Louis Tidlet charged into the ring, and he stopped me, which, you know, the bad part about my dad's hole was that you ended up on your back, and so did the other wrestler, and your legs were all tangled up with his, and mm -hmm. you're in a very compromising position if somebody wanted to jump in the ring with you. Yeah. So uh, that's what happened. I'm down. I can't protect myself, and Louis stomping me in the face, and the referee starts ringing the bell, obviously, and he disqualified him. And, uh, and I was able to finally get up, and I kind of I kind of tore into Tillet, you know, but then Mephisto came from behind and got me, and uh, both of them put the boots to me pretty darn good. And uh, then the big man tore Tanaka hit the ring, and boy, the studio exploded. And we ran, to all three of them, Don Fargo didn't, didn't <laughs> he was just limping out, but the other two didn't have a problem running out. Uh, and the rest, ref raised my hand. They brought that big, huge TV trophy. 
it was the third time in three months that I had defended that trophy. So it became kind of a thing. If you were the television champion about once a month, you were going to defend that television trophy on TV for fans all around, whether they came to the matches or not, they got to see it. Yeah. So Tanaka and I went to set for the last interview. I patted him on the back and I thanked him for his help for coming in and, and getting those two dudes off me. And, and he bowed at me and smiled to, and I told Les uh, how much each of these last matches before the NWA title match meant to me. And I told Les also how comfortable I felt with Tanaka as being a special referee in this 10,000 bounty match coming up the next Friday against Mephisto. Mm-hmm. And I really was confident that uh, Tanaka was going to take care of business if he needed to. And I asked Tanaka if he had anything to say at the end of the interview. <laughs> And boy, he did his normal deal. He he barked out a couple of whatever it was. You know, I didn't really, nobody understood it, no doubt. And then he reached down and he karate chopped the top of the big desk where Les and I were sitting. Uh oh. And uh, neither Les or I was expected it. Les almost fell out of his chair. He was like, ah, dog. You know, and, and he didn't much care for being anything unexpected happening on his TV show. Mm-hmm. And he didn't definitely didn't like wrestlers abusing his desk or his set or whatever it was. So Les got all perturbed, you know, a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I kept, I had a hard time not laughing at him. <laughs> you know? So my only disappointment about all this is that we got to go back the following Friday night. We can't go back into the Coliseum. We've got to go into that Jacobs building, the small indoor building in Chai Park. And I knew there was no way that they were going to hold the crowd that we were going to draw the following Friday. Wow. All right. But it it sounds like another great TV run. What happened in Chilhowee Park the next Friday night? Well, you had the Bill Ash and the Don Canoodle match uh, at the beginning. It was a 20-minute time limit match. And uh, wow, what a match these guys had. Both your young guys. Somebody, and I don't know who led that match, but boy, somebody really called a pretty decent match for two young guys. And I just really, I watched it. I got a feeling that these two guys are going to be stars. (laughs) And wherever they go, they are going to be stars someday. They were young and inexperienced, but went out and had a tremendous 20-minute time limit draw. Uh, Darling Dagmar beat Marie Laveau in the Midgets ladies match, and Jimmy Golden, Lani Kai. They won the mixed tag match over Susan Green and David Schultz. Pretty good group of guys there, Jimmy Golden and David Schultz, too, in that match. Uh, Louis Tillette won the collegiate rules match over Mike Stallings. And he did it by his wrestling, his, all of his wrestling experience that he was bragging about. He brought in there a, some type of cord, and it was probably about 18 inches long. He would get on top of Stallings and he would get that cord and he would wrap it around his neck and the referee could never find it. Stallings would start flopping and trying to let the referee know that he's being choked. And Tillette was doing a real good job at hiding what he was doing to Stallings because it's a wrestling match and they were on the mat, one on top of the other the whole time. So he used that rope long enough that he finally got a pinfall right in the middle of the ring on Stallings. Uh, and then Ronnie Garvin won the Southeastern Championship belt in his first try from the Gladiator. And uh, Homer Odell helped him, helped Ronnie some, by jumping on the apron at the end of the match. And he drew the referee and a little bit of Steinborn's attention. And Garvin took something from his tights and hit Steinborn back of the head. 
while the referees are dealing with Homer. And then Garvin put uh, the gladiator, drug him out like he did the boy on TV, and like he'd done them all. They drug him out to the middle of the ring, and, and he went up to that top rope, and he didn't have to control the, his height in this one. He wasn't going to hit the ring lights in, in this building. And he went, I don't know how high, but boy, he came off that top rope right in the gladiator's throat. Uh, and we had to, they had to go and get him. They had to carry Gladiator from the ring. I mean, Garvin was really making, he was making quite an impression on the fans. Oh, so God. the last match for the 10,000 bounty was the two special referees, Tanaka and Louis Tillette, was a crazy match. Each ref had his moments, obviously, and trying to take control of the match. But it finally ended when Mephisto set up. He, he, he was going to hit me with the fire. And I saw him. I had watched him do it three times now. I knew that when he turned his back to me and there was no reason for it to be expecting it. Now, Tanaka was the referee and he was wearing a white T-shirt. He didn't go out there like he was a wrestler. He wore a white T-shirt because he was a referee in this event. And uh, he saw what was about to happen to me. And uh, what a great guy Tanaka was. And he shoved me really hard out of the way because... Mephisto, when he turned to throw the fire, Tanaka shoved me out of the way, and then Tanaka lost his balance, and he fell on his face right where I was. And uh, the fireball missed me, but it landed on Tanaka's back. Ooh. So I went after Mephisto and Tillette, you know, and both of them left the ring immediately, and the referee disqualified him, obviously. And uh, Tanaka's back was burned a little bit, but because he had the T-shirt on, I think it kept him from being burned really badly. But uh, it burnt, he was burned bad enough that it made him mad. And boy, he just he <laughs> hit the floor and he went for their dressing room. He didn't go for our dressing room. And I had to go try to get him, man. And it's pretty hard to hold Tanaka back. You know, he was, he was like, no, no, I'm okay. You give me, I, mean, I don't know what he was saying, but but he was letting me know that to get out of the way. You know, I'm going to get him. So uh, it wow. ended up being a wild night and a wild match. A, a big night, evidently. What was the attendance that night, October 1st, 76? What was it? Well, it was about 4,000, which is all that little building would hold. And I guess the fire marshal, you know, was really strict that night, and he probably kept it down a little. We might have been able, and we're probably going to get over 4,000 in there a couple of times uh, in the next couple of months before we can go back to the Coliseum after the big world championship match. But uh, it, it was right in the 4,000 range. The following Friday night, Tanaka's going to be meeting Mephisto in a cage. So that's going to be the main event for the following week. Uh, and after Mephisto threw the fire and it ended up on Tanaka's back, not a good deal for Mephisto. And I'm going to be wrestling Dory Funk Jr. on that night in Amarillo, Texas. And, uh, you know, so I'm going to be not on that card at all. And it's kind of like Terry's final chance to stop me. It's uh, going to be a match that's two days before the October 10th World Championship match. Uh, if I get beat by Junior, then somebody else is going to take my place and wrestle Terry, or if Junior can hurt me. So I'm off to Amarillo, Texas on the next Friday night, and, uh, and the main event in Knoxville is Tanaka against Mephisto in the cage. So even though you went to Amarillo to face Dory Jr., it didn't help what was going to be happening in the following week back in Knoxville. So tell me a little bit about that. About uh, what was happening there while I was out? Yeah, in, in Amarillo. Why Amarillo? 
because it was not going to help the Knoxville match that was going to be only about a week away. Well, they, you know, what happened is that Terry and Junior, you know, Junior had been there two weeks for me straight, you know, and uh, Terry's coming to wrestle me for the world championship. And then those boys called in a favor. They go, okay, Ron, <laughs> you know, Junior's been to see you twice. We want you to come to Amarillo. We right. want you to come to Amarillo and, uh, and pay us back, you know? <laughs> so we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in, the, in the rest of this program. We'll talk a little bit about uh, what happened on that card. You know, so it'll be interesting for fans. All right, cool deal. All right, this is a good place to take a break. We'll do that. This studcast will continue in a moment right here. Part two of the fantastic tribute to the great Bullet Bob Armstrong is now available. This completes the longest super studcast, number 33. More than four and a half hours of wrestling history associated with Bob Armstrong, his wife Gail, and his remarkable four sons that all made their mark on professional wrestling. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, another three wrestlers, Dutch Mantel, Jody the Assassin Hamilton, and Kevin Sullivan, add to the stories and feelings. Charlie Platt, former Southeastern Pensacola TV commentator and one of Bob's best friends, adds his thoughts as well. Four in part one, and now four more in part two. If you were ever a fan or just want to know more about one of the greatest wrestling stars of all time, this is for you. Maybe the most popular Super Stud cast yet, and it's less than two cents per minute. TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast, only $2.99. This is why Super Studcast are the best deal in in wrestling, period. We're back on the Studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Remember, tnstud.com. tnstud.com. You can find it all there. All the information about all of the Studcast and Super Studcast as well. All right, so where are we riding next, Ron? Well, we're going to talk about that October 8th card, 1976. It's only two days before the NWA world title match between Terry Funk and myself in the Coliseum. Uh, and this is going to be the second of three matches in the same city in a 10-day period. I doubt that that ever happened anywhere in the world in wrestling. And, and when I started looking at these cards and thinking about it, I don't even know why I would do that. But uh, I guess I just wanted to see how many people I could put into Knoxville buildings for wrestling in a 10-day period of time. I Let guess that's your only... just right, Ron. You had three events in Knoxville, Tennessee in the first 10 days of October in 76. Three events. Three events. And one of them a world championship match that the prices are raised for. Wow. So, you know, it's kind of crazy, but, uh, you know, I guess I wanted to just keep things going. I mean, business was good, and I just said, hey, you know, well, let's just keep pushing it. You know, and, and I think, like I said, I think, Dave, uh, this is a history-making event, you know, something that's never been done in wrestling before. Three events in one city in 10 days. You know, maybe somebody who listened out there, and there are historians that listen to this show because, they, you know, I, I do a little historian stuff myself. You know, if there's anybody out there that hears this one and you want to find out if that's a world record, I'd like to know myself. Uh, three matches in 10 days in the same city. I don't know if that's ever been done. Anyway, let's take a look at the second event of these three events, and uh, that's going to be on Friday night, October 8th in 1976. It's going to be back in Chilhai Park again. The first match is going to be a tag team match with Jerry Stubbs and Don Carnoodle 
against David Schultz and Bill Ash, four really, really great young wrestlers. The second match featured the return of the number one hillbilly, as I used to call him anyway, Ron Wright. Ron Wright's coming home. Now, he hadn't been seen since August the 13th, 1976, when the great Mephisto burned him. Yeah. Uh, Ron was going up against a new masked man in this match called Mr. Knoxville. Uh-huh. And the entire crowd was going to be very upset with this wrestler before he even got to the ring. So the third match was a Southeastern title match with new champion, the Southeastern champion, the bad boy himself, man, Ronnie Garvin. And uh, he's going to be wrestling against a fan favorite, Jimmy Golden, for the belt. Fourth match was not a wrestling match, but this time Mike Stallings and Louis Tillette, they've had a Texas death. They've had a collegiate wrestling match. Now they're going to have a 10-round boxing match. (laughs) We're going to find out if these guys can do it. (laughs) We'll find out which one of them is good at whatever. So uh, the kind of unusual that you end up going from a Texas death to a collegiate match and now to a boxing match. But that's what the fourth match on this card was. The main event was, like I said, the cage match with now the two enemies. Tanaka was really pissed at Mephisto. And Tanaka wanted to wanted to get even for his little burns he had on his back. He didn't get really burned badly because he was lucky he had the T-shirt on. But he did get a couple of spots that he wasn't happy about. So you may notice that I'm not on this card. I spoke about it earlier because I'm in Amarillo. I'm aggressing Dory Funk Jr. in Amarillo. And this is a match that Dory Jr. and Terry talked to Sam Muchnick about, you know, hey, you know, it ain't fair for us to have to go to Knoxville and wrestle against him. You know, he needs to come here at least once. So Muchnick, uh, you know, being the president of the NWA, he decided, okay, yeah, you know, okay, I'm going to make it happen. But, you know, I really didn't mind about this. It, It didn't really upset me because I'd never wrestled in Amarillo. And my grandfather, Roy, you know, who I've told all kinds of stories about, happened to get started out there in that Amarillo area. And uh, and he had the relationship out there with the original Dutch Mantel. And I kind of wanted to go out in that part of the country. And then, you know, and it kind of piqued my interest to be booked in Amarillo. I'd never wrestled there. So I really wasn't dreading this. I, I look forward to it. You know, and, and every match you could have against a funk made you a better wrestler. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be as good as I could be. And to be as good as you can be, you got to wrestle the best. And then if I could beat a funk in Amarillo, that puts me on the wrestling map, man. I mean, there ain't a lot of dudes that ever get a win over the funks in Amarillo. So that's going to be a good thing for me to be able to make that trip and to, to see how I can fare well, against Dory Jr., I had beaten him one of the two matches I had with him in Knoxville, and I wanted to see if I could beat him in Amarillo. And the other thing is, it puts your name out in another market, so it makes you a little more uh, famous or infamous wherever you go, so that kind of spreads out a little bit. But what style did you wrestle in Amarillo? Were you the heel, the baby face? What, what was that? Well, you know, when you go to Amarillo and you're going to wrestle one of the Funk Brothers, uh-huh. Uh, you, you're going to be a heel, you know, uh-huh. whether you like it or not, the crowd right. is going to like you, you know? So yeah. 
I'm wrestling the, the Funks in their hometown, and uh, both of these boys are hometown heroes and big time. And they're world champions, you know. So no way was I or any other wrestler going to go to to Amarillo and wrestle against them and be a babyface. I, I really liked that too, though. It's kind of like uh, I like going there, but I liked it because I had opportunity to to wrestle as a heel again, which I hadn't done since the summer of '75, hmm. you know, and so. I had sent some interviews that the fans in Knoxville didn't know about because they never got to see them. But I cut interviews just like Terry and Junior were cutting and sending to Knoxville. Yeah. They let me cut interviews and send them to Amarillo. Yeah. And boy, I'd got on them just like they had done with the the Southeastern fans. I bragged about how much bigger and better Tennesseans were than Texans. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I had the same kind of fun with the funks that they were having with me and the Southeastern fans. You know, when I went to the ring on that Friday night in Amarillo, I had some heat, <laughs> had some real heat, man. Those Texans didn't like me. And then when we stood in the middle of the ring and there I was six inches taller than Doy Jr. and about <laughs> 40 pounds heavier. Wow, I'd got more heat than anything, I think, you know, because the fans looked and they go, God, this son of a gun's pretty big. You You talked about moving the interview tapes from one market to another. You sent Don Carson off to bring tapes back. How did you transfer the tapes for the interviews that you did? Well, you just, uh, you put them on a, back in those days, I don't think there was FedEx back in those days. You know, you (laughs) didn't have that type of. Yeah, I'm right. seriously, everybody, everybody sent their, uh, television tapes. They, they, they bicycle their television tapes. And when they cut a special tape like that, they sent it usually by bus. Wow. Uh, okay. Greyhound. Bus, Greyhound bus. And, uh, yeah. you know, so you cut that interview and you put it on the Greyhound bus. It probably took it three days to get out there to Amarillo, but, uh, you know, you cut it on a Saturday and they weren't going to use it until a following Saturday. Yeah. So, you know, it was the, pretty much the system and the way it was done. You ship things by Greyhound, especially since your big tapes that you've recorded your program on weighed about 90 pounds. Yeah. They were in a, in a big can, two inches wide and were extremely heavy. It would have cost you a fortune to fly on FedEx. Back oh, in those days. Yeah. It, 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 it amazes me the attention to detail that you guys went to way back then, as you said, with those big, heavy reels. But in the meantime, let's talk about the TV on Saturday, October 2nd, that was promoting the following Friday night's card you just told us about a couple of minutes ago. You were able to be on this TV, right? Yeah. Yeah, this one I was going to be able to be on because it's on Saturday, October 2nd. I'm not going to be in Amarillo until the following Friday night on the 8th. So, uh Yes, I'm on the TV, but I'm not going to be on there a lot because I'm not on the card. It wouldn't make any sense for me to be have a big presence on the television show and not be on the card. Right. So this particular TV, the still shot that opens this one is a real beauty. I mean, after Les opened the show, uh, he ran down the card as he had been doing, and the cameras were on a close-up of him, and you couldn't really see that big set behind him until they backed off. And when they backed off this time, there was Tanaka from the night before. He was laying face down on the mat, and he had a that fireball that had been thrown by Mephisto was on his back, and it was covering probably three-quarters of his back. It just stopped it right there, still framed it, where the fire was on uh, Tanaka's back. 
wow, what a shot that was. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. fans were like, oh, you know, those people that didn't see it, that weren't at the matches, that would be a shocking thing. You know, they, they go like, wow, what is that? You know, he's, yeah. he's on fire. Yeah. So, again, the T-shirt that he was wearing, it saved him from getting burned badly. Uh, but he did get a couple of pretty nasty little red red marks, and uh, probably probably it bothered him some. So the great Mephisto and Louis Tillet were with Les at the set when this background is shown. And uh, Les turned to the great Mephisto right off the bat, and he asked him when he was going to stop throwing these fireballs and injuring wrestlers. You know, what is this all about? Why do you do this? You know, you, you've got wrestling skills. And uh, Mephisto and Louis, they just laughed, you know, that there's like a, hey, whatever Les said, they, they paid no attention to him basically. And so Les kind of demanded an answer, you know, like, Hey, Hey, tell me, tell me the answer to that question. And Mephisto, he didn't hold back. Boy, he shouted. He just started shouting back at him. He goes, Something about, you know, when these infidels learn their lesson and they drop on their knees and defeat to us Muslims around the world, I'll quit throwing fireballs. <laughs> That's a hell of an answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, what are we, you and a, you, you a damn a torture. You are the, the torching person of your right. life buildings on fire. What's the deal here? You know? And, uh, and then he says, uh, you know, I failed to get fuller. But I at least got a Japanese, and to me, that was infidel enough for me. <laughs> and then he says uh, something about, but I'd have preferred to got his face. <laughs> you know, he, like, he wasn't happy that he burned his back. He, yeah, yeah. he wished it had been his face. And Les got mad. Les got upset, like, because he shouted a little bit at him right off the start, you know, when he started to answer him. And, uh, before Les could really, and I could see Les is like, he's going to tear into the Mephisto. And all of a sudden, boy, from out of nowhere, the old Southeastern favorite himself, man, Ron Wright, comes busting out on the set. <laughs> and the studio crowd, as soon as they saw him, they didn't know he was even the back, you know. And then all of a sudden, there he is, man. And he goes right to the set. Mephisto and them. And to let they they were sitting down and they jumped to their feet, man. They're ready to fight. And Ron Wright, instead of going right straight for him, he comes around to the front of the set and he reaches across to try to get Mephisto. Mephisto had the long black hair and he was trying to grab his hair so he could drag him across the desk. And um, Mephisto and Toled, both of them, they kind of scrambled away from the desk and they went back to the dressing room. Mm-hmm. So Ron Wright came around the desk and he stood there by Les. He couldn't sit down. He was mad. He was really mad. And he's, he, you know, he started out with the fact that he had personally felt the heat from one of those fireballs, by golly, on his face. And that less, he showed less his face, and you couldn't see very good with a close-up. But he said he had actually lost some of his eyesight since the Arab had burned him with the big fireball he threw on him. And that, uh, you know, he hadn't been in here in Southeastern for almost two months. And by golly, now he was back. You know, and old Ron was really giving it to him too, boy. He had those, he had those fans going crazy. You know, I'm back, man. He was giving them the deal, and the crowd erupted, man. They loved Ron Wright, man. And he continued, you know, they wouldn't give me a match with a fisto. He was saying, but I'm not going to sit back there in the dressing room. And I ain't let those hoodlums run the show here. He said, uh, you know, I I apologize. He apologized. He said, you know, Les, I'm I'm sorry, but I just couldn't take no more of it. 
<laughs> they can't talk that way, you know, about, you know, that's a, that's a horrible thing, you know, boy, he was all fired up. So, you know, Les told him, said, hey, uh, Ron, since you're here and you seem to be pretty upset, you know, maybe you ought to take this out on an opponent and you're scheduled for the first match. So Ron apologized again, Les, I'm sorry about what I did, you know, and I shouldn't have come out here and interrupted like this. But you're right, I'm going in there. And he, so he went right in the ring, and boy, there wasn't any wrestling in that match. I mean, Ron just, he he gave a poor old Tony Peters a, a good old Tennessee dog whooping, I'm <laughs> telling you, man. <laughs> and those fans loved it, man. They hadn't seen a dog whipping in a couple of months. And, mm. and then when he went for his pin and his back was turned, here comes Mephisto and Toilette into the ring, same as they had done me the week before. And they started double teaming him and they even got him bleeding. And the studio was just going wild during all this. And Ron was down. He was about out. And here comes Tor Tanaka again. And uh, he rescues Ron this time. And the crowd went up another level once Tanaka hit the ring. I mean, Mm -hmm. wow. The studio was just going crazy. So right Tanaka, they went straight back to the set. And uh, there was a two-minute commercial break there. And Les sent somebody back. He's, you know, he he, he, talk, he could talk once the cameras went off. He had a two minutes of black. He's, he's told somebody to go get a towel so that we can wipe this blood off of Ron's face. You know, he didn't want to have him all bloody being there on the set with him. So he wiped off his face. And then when the, when the, the actual interview began, we had the Vitafont that ran down the card since it was early in the night, the first match, basically, early on the card. They showed the, the matches for Friday night, and then they showed that the main event was Tanaka and Mephisto in a cage. So Ron had a chance to see that. He knows that he's booked with somebody named Mr. Knoxville, but he didn't go into that at all. You know, He was really happy, I think, to have uh, Tanaka save him. So Ron was ready, man. And as soon as that red light came on that camera, that's what he lived for anyway, man. He became the old Ron Wright. And he ignited that studio audience again, man. He got him up to a fever pitch with this interview. He said something about how much he hated that Arab and how (laughs) tough this man. He put his hands around Tanaka's shoulder and how tough this big Japanese man is compared to that ugly Arab. And, you know, and he hated that. You know, and how he'd hated to be in that Arab shoes the following Friday night because you're going to be in the ring with this monster right here. And uh, inside that cage, he said, there's no place you can run because he'd been in a lot of them. And, uh, and he saw how the fire on Tanaka's back in the opening of the show. He said, when I watched that list and I saw that fire on his back, he said, it brought back the memory of how it felt when it was on my face. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm sorry. I just went off. I couldn't help it. You know, so he is going to. Sh- He's going down to the ring with Tanaka, he's promised, on next Friday night, and he's going to watch his back. He's going to make sure that sneaky little Canadian, Louis Tillette, wasn't going to be able to get involved in the cage match. (laughs) The fans never stopped roaring, man. The whole interview. Finally, uh, Ron and them uh, left the studio after that interview was over. That's awesome. So what a way to open the show. What happens next? Well, the rest of the show had all kinds of things. It added to the start of this show. Uh, there was a very unusual, which we didn't do very often. I, I put a lady midget match on TV between Darling Dagmar and Marie Laveau. They were in town anyway. They stayed over, and I said, I want you on TV tomorrow. There was another win for the new Southeastern champion, Ronnie Garvin, and another opponent got carried out of the ring when he jumped off the top rope in his throat. 
It got to be a habit. It was happening every week. And Jimmy Golden had a great interview about his upcoming match with Garvin for the Southeastern title. Mike Stallings and Louis Tillette both had interviews about their 10-round boxing match. And Tor Tanaka got a real good win in the last match of that show. So it was a pretty darn good show. And, uh, and I figured it was going to do pretty good the next week. I got involved in the personality profile on it. And I had someone had sent me a poster from Amarillo, Texas. They put out posters and I was putting out posters in Knoxville. The big posters that you see that people now prize so much, the wrestling fans. This poster was from Amarillo, Texas, and it showed the main event. And Les and I sat there and when we put the poster on the screen and it showed the main event was me against Dory Jr. in Amarillo. And that's the reason I wasn't on the Knoxville card. And we discussed the difficulty of winning against the Funks and Amarillo, how seldom it ever happened. And I brought up the fact that I didn't have to win this match. I just couldn't lose it. If I lost it, I lost my deal. I wasn't going to get my match, but uh, I didn't have to beat Funk. So Les complimented me for how I'd handled everything since Terry had thrown all this stuff at me. Like you mentioned earlier, Terry had thrown this kitchen sink at me for months, you know, leading up to the world championship match with me and, and how close I was to making it happen. Uh, we talked about the possibility that I might get home next Saturday after this match in Amarillo uh, early enough to make the Southeastern TV show. He said, Ron, if, if you had an early morning flight out of Amarillo, there's a possibility that you could be here and on this program next Saturday. And either way, I told him I was going to be taking next Saturday off, next Saturday night off. Mm -hmm. I wasn't booked because I was going to be wrestling on Sunday afternoon for the world championship. And then I told him I'd put together the figures that I had, and this was a true, true story, that I had wrestled more than 100 times without a loss since the day I was selected to wrestle against Terry Funk for the world championship. So, you know, a uh, hundred times, I pretty well proven that, that I was, I was qualified to get that shot by wrestling a hundred times. And that included this match that's going to be in uh, Amarillo, which we'll talk a little bit about briefly next week. But, uh, you know, a hundred wins, uh, without a loss is pretty hard to do for any down wrestler. So I was really ready for this match, man. Uh, I was, uh, Slightly worried about what was going to happen in Friday in Amarillo, but I felt like that since I had a win over Junior, that I could go to Amarillo and certainly not lose. And that was my goal, was not to lose. If I beat him, that would be great, but I certainly couldn't afford to lose. No, not not with that much time left. That That's not just wrestling. That's a gauntlet that you went through. Another tremendous TV, Ron. So tell us what happened in Knoxville on the same night that you were in Amarillo and there were still some great matches happening back at home. Yeah. I mean, uh, there was, and, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy told me a lot about what had went on because I wanted to know, you know, and in the first match, Jerry Stubbs and Don Canoodle, they had uh, wrestled a draw with uh, David Schultz and Bill Ash. These four guys, man, they were going to become, and, and they all did just about every one of them became a big name. Uh, later on in their career. Certainly David Schultz slap heard around the world. Uh, Don Cornoodle goes back to Mid-Atlantic and becomes a huge star there. Jerry Stubbs becomes Mr. Olympia. And Bill Ash was one of the greatest 
junior heavyweights that the sport ever saw. So these four guys were just tremendous, and they had big futures ahead of them. And, uh, you know, Southeastern fans got to watch that match that night. They never realized the talent they were looking at. You know, they they never had any idea where these guys, these four guys are going to end up going. So Ron Wright won a second match against an opponent named Mr. Knoxville. And this is a good one here. I enjoyed this one. You know, uh, Jimmy says, he he said, Ron, you couldn't believe it. He goes, uh, he said, by the time Don Carson got down to the ring, he said, uh, the entire crowd was booing him. They were all standing on their feet. And he said, if you couldn't tell by looking at his body, he said, uh, everybody knew who the hell it was when they looked at the black glove, right? <laughs> he said, Ron, the fans were just on fire. They were so mad that Don Carson could lose a loser leave town match just two weeks earlier and come back with a mask on, right? <laughs> you know, then he said, you know, I think that what really made him mad, maybe even madder than that, was the fact that he called himself Mr. Knoxville, <laughs> right? <laughs> And he said, maybe more, he said, you know, when you think about it, he says, you know, he beat Robert about two months earlier. And Rob never came back, not a single time after he got beat. He left and did what he's supposed to do. So, you know, it was just amazing. There's no end to Carson's heat. So here comes uh, Don Carson back with a mask on, still got his black glove. Everybody knows who he is. He calls himself Mr. Knoxville. It's like, wow, he's just, he's back at the, and he's probably got more heat than ever, you know? So next match was a great one. From what I heard, Jimmy told me he had his match with Ronnie Garvin for the Southeastern Championship, and the match was a 45-minute time limit, and Garvin couldn't beat him. They wrestled to a draw. Jimmy said that Garvin wrestled him probably 90% of the match. He did very little bit of healing during the match. You know, he was just, uh, he, he showed it. He said, I never realized what a great wrestler Ronnie Garvin was until this match. And then he said, when the time expired and the bell rung, that, uh, you know, Garvin offered to shake his hand. You know, and he said, well, you know, we'd had a pretty clean match. And he goes, you know, I didn't mind doing that. He goes, yeah, well, why not? So he said, he shook his hand. And then he said, he turned around to leave the ring and Garvin tacked him from oh, behind. <laughs> and he pile-drived him. Mm-hmm. And then he said he drug me into the middle of the ring and he climbed up on the top rope and he jumped <laughs> off in my throat. Wow. <laughs> and I said, Well, what'd that feel like, Jim? <laughs> he goes, he goes, Rhonda carried me out, damn it. <laughs> <He> goes, <laughs> what do you think? It wasn't exactly what Jimmy wanted to have happen, but you know, I was surprised to hear that he could uh, stay with Garvin for 45 minutes, which has been a hell of a match. Absolutely. So Mike Stallings. He won the 10-round boxing match with Louis Tillette. Uh, Jimmy didn't remember much of that one. I don't guess he saw much of what happened after that. Cage match was won by uh, Tor Tanaka over the great Mephisto. And, uh, you know, I'm sure in that cage match that because karate and everything else was legal, I'm sure that Tanaka got to open up and he got to do his karate thing. And uh, and I don't see how Mephisto could have beat him, that's for sure, with uh, Tanaka being able to use karate. For real. All right. Even though you were out of town, the attendance was still had to be pretty good that night. What was the attendance on the last event in Knoxville before the October 10th world title match? You were not there for it, but it still had to be a pretty good night. Yeah. I mean, it was. It You know, it's, it's October 8th. It's just two days before the world title match. 
And it was just about 4,000 fans again. I mean, you know, and what was really impressive to me when I got the figure was the fact that uh, it was only two days before this huge Coliseum show. I really, when when I booked it, I kind of expected that it was going to be a little drop off in the crowd size because people are going to save their money to come to the world title match. But evidently, they were so much into what was going on that they, they decided they were going to get the money and be able to come to both of them. You know, and then prices are going to be raised by a dollar and a little more than that for ringsiders for this world championship match. So uh, I was pleased. It was just about 4,000 that had been the week before. Well, there you go. Another great stud cast, Ron, today. You covered two TVs and two Knoxville cards. I can't wait to hear what you may have in store for us next week as the big day finally arrives. You've been building it up during these stud casts. Exactly the same way you guys had built it up in Knoxville. All right. On Facebook, like either or both Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Pages, or author Ron Fuller Welch Page to automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 33, part two. The Bob Armstrong tribute is now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Part two contains thoughts and stories of the great Bob Armstrong from Dutch Mantel, Jody the Assassin Hamilton, Kevin Sullivan, and Charlie Platt, the Southeastern Pensacola TV commentator and one of Bob's best friends in the world. This entire wonderful tribute is four and a half hours of wrestling history. Ron, what is the latest news on the new novel called Brutus? What's happening there? Uh, it's pretty amazing, man. Things are kind of taking off with Brutus. Uh, Brutus is, uh, he's beginning to roar some, I can tell you that. You know, last week I did something that I'd never done before on my author site, on my Facebook uh, author site, Ron Fuller Welch, author. I read from the book. I read some of the book. It was about a 30-minute segment that I did. Uh, I read it live. And uh, at this point, there are already 22 worldwide reviews on Amazon. If, if fans are interested in checking out the book, you can go to Amazon.com, Brutus Novel. Uh, you can buy the book uh, there at Amazon, uh, or you can read these ratings, which I'd like for people to re read these reviews. It's pretty amazing. Every one of them is a five-star rating. Wow. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, nobody has, has said that it's anything other than wonderful. And it's really been a good thing. I think maybe I got a little bit of a chance to be a writer, man. <laughs> if I wanted to push it, and maybe there's a sequel to Brutus somehow, man, if it gets there. I'm not going to be surprised by that at all, from a great storyteller to a great writer. All right. So where are we writing next week, Ron? Well, we're going to do, like I said, a special stud cast next week. We're going to take a deep dive into everything that happened on Sunday afternoon, August 10th, 1976, in the Knoxville Coliseum with my match, Terry Funk, for the NWA World Championship. Uh, in my opinion, this is one of the greatest events in Knoxville wrestling history. It's Sunday afternoon, and uh, it's got everything in this day. So much stuff is going on, and there's so much things that we really haven't talked about much that we're going to get introduced on this day, too. And I just can't wait to tell everybody what the card alone is. The card alone is just unreal. It's a tremendous card. So the day is going to also include the introduction and the presentation of a brand-new Cadillac that's going to be given away in a tournament early in 1977. 
you know, it will also have one of the most controversial finishes in the history of NWA, especially for the world championship. It's going to have a riot in it. <laughs> it's it's going to be wild enough that there's going to be a riot in the Coliseum. There's going to be title changes. There'll be the return of several stars, and somebody's going to the hospital. It was the greatest day for Southeastern wrestling up to that point, but it was only the stepping stone to where Southeastern was headed in the future. Wow. And, and as always, I want to thank everybody that listens out there, man, so much uh, for riding with us again today. And uh, take care of yourselves and others, and, and God bless us all. All right. Great job, Ron. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Please join us again next week as we ride into wrestling history. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>